Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I got to say, it has been such an incredible few weeks meeting hundreds of listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned next week for the most epic DC BKK review episode of all time. We're already working on it. We hope you'll join us for that one. So today on the pod, I thought we'd run an episode from our best of catalog. It's just been such a crazy few weeks because it's about a subject very close to my heart, as many of you know, blogging. And also the discussion around building an audience is changing a lot this week. And I don't know, part of what being at DCBKK, seeing so many of you who are passionate about this pod and others like it, as well as publishers of all types, publishers on Twitter, YouTube, blogs, makes me think that there's still an incredible opportunity to build an audience in 2023, maybe better than ever. So let's talk about it today. And it'll be really interesting to see what Elon's doing over at Twitter. He talked about this week, maybe allowing long form content or allowing people to monetize their content on the platform. Both things would be very, very exciting because it's undeniable that over the past five years, Twitter specifically has taken the place of a lot of personal blogs. And I think the interplay between the two is really, really interesting. And we could be in a moment here where there's a new channel for new types of businesses and new types of audiences. So I thought this one would be really relevant. So the episode we're going to run is from 2020 when most of us were locked at home during the pandemic and was inspired by a thread in our forum, the Dynamite Circle titled, Personal Blogging, A Waste of Time? Question <laughs> mark. And I think the answer is it depends how you do it. So listen to this episode to hear some tips from people who've made it work. Two respondents from that thread join me on the show to talk about how they got started and the impact of social media on their blogging and a lot more. One was Amanda Cook. She's an author, podcaster, herbalist, and founder of a business called Wellpreneur. Over the years, she's published online about various different business ventures and projects. But one consistent thing she's always had is a blog, which you can check out at amandacook.me. And the second guest, well, he's a regular, so I'll let him reintroduce himself. So let's get going. My name is Taylor Pearson. I'm a principal at the Mutiny Fund and also like to write about things periodically. And where is your personal blog located? TaylorPearson.me. I believe I just received an email from you called The Interesting Times. That's right. Yes, I've been, we can talk about that. I've been doing a newsletter. Newsletters are hot now. We've, we've reinvented <laughs> blogs. Ten years ago, we had blogs, and once a week, you posted a blog post. And now we've had this new innovation where every week, instead of sending people a blog post on RSS, you send people a newsletter over email. So the world is changing. Amanda, do you remember the first personal blog you put up? So I had my first blog back in 2005, actually. And I want to talk about that with you guys because it was such a different world than the blogosphere, you know? And so back in 2005, I started a blog on manners and etiquette, like modern manners with a friend. We were in our 20s and we thought it would be really funny to basically write humorous things. 
So that kind of started it. And since then, I've had a blog solidly since then, but it just keeps evolving. So the topics tend to like change with what I'm interested in. So it went from modern etiquette to live when I moved to France, then it was like, I'm an American in Paris. And I blogged about that for a while. I moved to England and I started learning about herbal medicine. So I started an herbal medicine blog. And this is one of the things I did wrong is I just kept changing. Every time I changed, I just kept starting a new blog, which is terrible versus the personal brand approach. So that's kind of how I started, but it's had a lot of iterations over the years until it finally hit my, I figured out, ah, I should just put it on a personal brand. I think all three of us grew up during the heyday of the personal blog revolution. Taylor, what do you remember about that time that might be a little bit different from nowadays? I remember during the global financial crisis, mid to late 2000s, and I remember there were like a few bloggers I was following that were like basically live blogging the largest economic collapse. You know, they were working at like Morgan Stanley and they would like come home and like write about what happened at the trade floor on Morgan Stanley that day. It was kind of a casual, fun tone, right? It wasn't like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times where it has to be like all Oh, we're the paper of records. It's just like, I'm just a dude. And I like talked to these two other, a dude and a chick. And now we're writing about stuff. You know, it's just, it was, uh, <laughs> I like that approach, right? It wasn't super pretentious. What's your take on uh, Amanda's start and stop with different topics and blog concepts? I did the opposite, actually. And I think maybe perhaps you gave me advice on this at some point. So my initial blog was frontierliving.com, no G, because of course that domain was not available. <laughs> Certainly would go for a pretty penny nowadays. <laughs> yeah, I, I still own it. If anyone's interested, feel free to contact me. But then I just spun that. You know, I, I kind of wasn't quite sure. I like played around with an e-commerce marketing blog, which was like eight-ish, seven or eight years ago. I was like, oh, well, that's the thing. And I think actually you, Dan, we were talking about it. I got like, just do a personal thing. And so I just registered taylorpearson.me. And I think that's been a good decision. Because I think really there's, you know, I can kind of look back. There's almost like, eras or epics of the blog. And I feel like I'm kind of in like the third epic. So it's kind of gone, you know, if I was going to start a new blog, I'd really be on the third one, but I've kind of just, I've moved on to the next thing. And, you know, you know, some of the the readers have come along, you know, more than I would have expected, really. The downside of the personal thing is it's just less specific, right? When you hear like epicgardening.com, it's like, oh, everyone gets what it's about, right? Whereas Joan Johansson or whatever is not, you know, explicitly clear what the topic is. It's interesting that you said that a lot of your readers came along with you and that surprised you because I found something similar once I shifted to a personal blog and then changed the topic. A lot of people stuck around and I thought you have that fear like, oh my God, I'm going to everyone's going to leave. And it's interesting because it's like your personal evolution. So the people that are reading your blog are probably interested in the same stuff you are. So if you start to evolve into different topics, there's a good chance they will be too. And so that's so smart to keep it like on your own site rather than just say, oh, no one's going to want to read this and start a new thing from scratch. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about as I was thinking about this topic is blog comments. Because if I think back to like 2005 to like 2010, say, everything was happening in the comments. There was these great discussions going on. And I feel like, I don't know about you guys, but I've turned comments off several years ago because it just, it felt like the whole conversation had moved to social media, really. But do you remember that? There's like two or three blogs I still follow that started like around that time. And like they still have pretty good comment sections. They got Tyler Cowan's blog, Marginal Revolution, and uh, Slate Star Codex are the two that came to mind. 
you'll get some whatever economist from Harvard that jumps in and says, well, this study was blah, 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 because, you know, they didn't look at this sort of thing. I also turned off comments like it just didn't seem to go anywhere. A lot of that for me, I think, moved to Twitter, both like mm-hmm. me interacting with readers and myself interacting with other people whose blogs I read. You know, I would like post their article on Twitter and be like, you know, hey, really like this, like this, this was interesting. What about such and such? We're going to get to Twitter because I got a major beef about Twitter. But before we get on to like our first topic, Amanda, do you remember like the first time you posted something on a blog that like meant something bigger than just you expressing yourself on the web that sort of moved your career forward in a way? It's interesting because I've, I've posted a lot of blog posts that I felt were like world changing, you know, like before you push publish <laughs> where you think, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Like, will all People my better re- get ready for this? Yeah. Or will all my readers leave? Like, you feel like it's such a big deal because it's something personal for you or some paradigm shift you've had. And it usually doesn't have that type of impact. I'll get nice responses back, but I haven't had the reaction that I was worried about. But I'd say the good thing that's happened is I've had a lot of opportunities come in. So I've had like consulting opportunities and speaking opportunities and opportunities to give workshops and stuff that have all come in just because of my blog. So that's been really cool. How about you, Taylor? Do you remember a post that you put on the web that sort of markedly changed your career? Yeah, the first one I wrote was my book notes for Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb which this would have been like 2013, 2014. I read the book and I was like, this is amazing. And so I spent you know, like 20 hours and like wrote these very detailed book notes and sort of broke it down and explained it by categories. He retweeted it and you know, he had a bunch of Twitter followers. And then it went to like the front page of Hacker News and like, I don't know, 5,000 people came to my website, which was like an insane number of people. I don't know what it changed a lot. I've, I've done a lot of stuff sort of building on that since then. But I think it was a lot of it was just like confidence. I think it was like, oh, this could work. Like, this is a good use of my time. I think like in the early days for me, especially, it was just like putting a lot of effort into this. And like, it's not clear that I'm getting much back out of it. I was maybe like two years in at that point, And that was like a big moment of like, oh, okay, this could go somewhere interesting. Is it the same thing like Amanda was saying, like, just people hitting you up for consulting and stuff like that? Or, I mean, what's the point of having 5,000 people come to your website? A lot of it for me too, even still is like very like qualitative people I know personally or through Twitter sort of like semi-professional contacts will like mention that they like something or you tend to get focused on like traffic and stuff. But like, you know, there's 200 people sort of in my orbit that I like care about and are interesting and could potentially work with them at some point. And like just having those 200 people kind of like read one in every three posts, like the value there is like pretty substantial. In the long term, it turns into consulting clients or business partners or new projects or new products. And I think that was my initial thing. It's like, well, if I just write this for like 150 people and it's just like, you know, a weekly update or what I'm thinking and, and like half of those people read it, like it's still like a pretty good use of my time. So Part of the reason we're here, guys, is that there was a discussion in D.C. about this, and a lot of members weighed in with thoughts about why one might start a blog. And I wanted to start there. Amanda, what for you would be like the top reasons if people are considering whether or not they should pull out the quill, fire up the WordPress? For me, it's all about having a platform, a platform that's mine, and it's about Amanda, and it can evolve with me. And so I think it gives you so much flexibility in your career and your businesses and your interests going forward. 
you know, you have all that backlog of content, even if it's about different topics. I just feel like it gives you a lot of authority to reach out for opportunities, like speaking opportunities, or to make connections with people, to share thoughts, to step up and be a thought leader. It's like you're having a network in a way, like a network of trusted contacts, but it's like that, but it's like your platform. The other thing that I really feel is that it's like it's your home on the web. So even so many of us do multiple projects, and this is the one place that can pull it all together. If you like to write, I guess that's the other caveat. If you hate writing, it's probably too much. It's too much effort and it won't show you in your best light. But if you enjoy writing and that's how you process thoughts, I think it's such a good use of time. I think part of it for me, I like really enjoyed when I first started doing it, like the process of writing and like improving as a writer and articulating and all that kind of stuff was like just kind of rewarding in and of itself. Because I think like before I, I saw any like financial return my blog, it was definitely at least two years and it might've been like three or four. Like it was a substantial amount of time, right? Like you wouldn't keep working on a business if it made zero revenue for two years. Some of us might, some of us might. <laughs> yeah. Some people would. <laughs> at least for me, that was like a big thing. I think you know, Seth Godin had a good, uh, he had, I think it was one of his blog posts that I had read at that point. And it was kind of like, you know, when you have some sort of publishing deadline, whatever you have the blog post you're putting out every week or the newsletter or the, whatever the Instagram post, YouTube video, it sort of affects the way you like see and think, right? It's like in the back of my head, I'm always like, I got to come up with some semi novel, interesting thing to say in the next six days. Right. And so I, I think that sort of like provides a filter. I'm not quite sure, you know, where this is going to lead, but I think one interesting example, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator you know, Y Combinator basically started as a blog post. He published something. It was like in 2005. It was like the six things wrong with early seed startup fundraising. And it was like one, two, three, four, five, six. And a bunch of people were like, oh, this is awesome. He's like, well, you know, I, I think he just sold his company. He's like, okay, if you move out to, I think he was in Boston at the time, Boston for the summer, I'll like mentor you and give you 10 grand and, you know, help you kind of start your company. And, you know, that turned into Y Combinator. So, you know, that's the amount of time he could have spent on that blog for that one post to like make everything worth it was like tremendous, right? There's a, there's that sort of optionality upside to it. And so I think I've always thought about it in those terms, right? There's maybe, you know, I've written 200 blog posts and maybe three of them account for like 70% of the value of writing the blog. But it's, you know, it's just impossible to know a priori for me, at least like what those three are going to be. Like I never, the same as Amanda, like, I'm like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm just going to love it and just totally falls flat. I'm like, oh, this one kind of sucks. And everyone's like, oh, that was great. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's like when you look at web traffic, isn't it? Like you, you write these posts you think are going to be amazing. And then you get like, yeah, 80% of your web traffic from the three random posts. And yeah, <laughs> you never know in advance. For me, it's how to play guitar in 10 hours or less. I've had millions of views and actually could be a business in its own right. And that's, I think, one of the interesting things you brought up, Taylor, is this idea of optionality. Can you explain what that means? This is, I mentioned Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. This is one of his ideas. Here's an options trader. So in finance, an option is the right, but not the obligation to buy or sell a security. So like if you buy, you know, recently people have been buying like calls on Tesla, which means if the price of Tesla goes up a lot, you're going to make a lot of money because, you know, anything above 10% increase in the price, you're entitled to that, that benefit kind of thing. It's a framing of taking that and applying that to other things, right? So like in the case of, you know, Paul Graham's blog post, right? That, that, that was like a little option, right? It had a very, it had a relatively low cost. It was like whatever it took him to write 
there's potentially kind of a this very high uncapped upside if it led to some interesting connection or you know whatever it would be. That's how I've always kind of thought about blogging, podcasting, YouTubing. Is it's like there's that eighty twenty kind of thing, right? It's just a, there's a, a few podcast episodes or a few blog posts or whatever that like account for for most of the upside, and you kind of don't know what they are going into it, so you just kind of put a bunch of them out there and see what sticks. Are you posting every single week? So you you definitely post something once a week. I do, yeah. For me, it's like the schedule, it drives my thinking, I guess. I guess what I've done this year is I do a newsletter every week, which usually is like an hour to two hours tops to put together. Because I used to do a long form post every two weeks. And sometimes those would take like 20 hours. That was a bunch of time. But yeah, now I'm doing the the newsletter, which is like an hour or two. And then I, I try to publish the long form stuff, like just kind of randomly. It's interesting because like if I'm starting a business, if I want to build an audience, I definitely have a schedule and, you know, crank out content on that schedule and stick to it. But I think for people listening, if they're thinking about starting a personal blog, I wouldn't say you'd have to do. I'm curious your thoughts about this, actually. Like I wouldn't I just say, let it be fun and write when you have something to say, because otherwise it can start to feel like work. Totally. And I was, was going to ask you this, because I'm, I, I'm thinking about maybe getting a little bit less frequent. Yeah. As I've had other projects that, you know, take more and more of my time and energy, I'm like, oh, well, is it really this two hours a week that I'm spending on this? It would like sure be nice to have those two hours back. That seems like a very valid approach to me. I don't, I guess I, I maybe it's just like a, I'm worried. I've always had a publishing schedule for like six or seven years now. And so like, you don't want to get off the train kind of thing. I would like to say if I stopped, like people would notice. I'm not sure they would. <laughs> we got a new sponsor, everybody. It's Content Refined. Are you a website owner who doesn't have the time to manage your sites? Whether you have an affiliate site, an e-commerce store, or a website dedicated to your business, Content Refined can help. Content Refined provides hands-off content management, a dedicated project manager and editorial team, keyword research and content planning, high-quality SEO-optimized content, and publishing to your site. And what's better is they offer a free consultation to review your site's goals and create a long-term strategy for content creation. Their goal is always to increase your organic traffic and keyword rankings. And because you're listening to this today, Content Refined is offering a 20% discount to TMBA listeners. Just go to contentrefined.com slash TMBA to claim your discount now. That's contentrefined.com slash TMBA. And a big thanks to the team at Content Refined for sponsoring the TMBA podcast. As you guys were speaking, there was like different genres of blog posts popped into my head and the different kinds of effects they can have. So there's the Query the universe post, which I think of as some of the most impactful posts I've ever written were similar to the Paul Graham story. Like the Dynamite Circle started as a Query the Universe post, for example. Like DCBKK, which is our biggest event, started as a Query the Universe post. I once posted a post about opening up an incorporation in Hong Kong and like, you know, I did this bank thing and like that could have been a business unit in and of itself, that one blog post. I once wrote a blog post about like why. I wasn't going to start an incubator for lifestyle businesses. And I like laid out my financial rationale and stuff. And that could have ironically been a lifestyle business incubator. And then I think about like the, here's the details of my journey kind of blog post. Like Taylor, you wrote a brilliant case study once about 
working for the portable bar company and like the amazing marketing schemes you implemented there. And by laying out like what you had accomplished, it made it so clear to readers how they could participate with you in a similar kind of a journey. Uh, Nat Eliason is a good example of that kind of like kind of case study of my life. Maybe you guys think in blog posts, like I have a blog post right now that needs to exist, which is like my golf improvement. I went from like a bogey golfer to a five handicap over the last two years. And like, I just am not happy with what's out there on the web, you know? And like, it's, I have the whole thing laid out, like the different epochs and stuff. So that's another genre. And then finally, this is the most, the one that's most like work, Amanda. And the one maybe with the most kind of diverse outcomes for me is the essay. And the essay is the post where you try to figure out what you think. If you can nail this, it has an enormous personal upside. If you've ever met like a famous writer, you sometimes note that like they speak like their books because they've sort of nailed these concepts that they have spent a lot of time formulating. And it took writing them to figure out what they think because this stuff is complex. And an example recently that came across my desk was, you know, Kevin Kelly who wrote 1,000 True Fans, one of the biggest impact blog posts of the past decade, was kind of just trying that idea on at cocktail parties for a couple of years. You kind of have this sketch idea and you could put it on a Facebook thing, but to really flesh it out and to really have an impact such that you can speak about it deeply and others can participate in it, sometimes that takes sitting down and writing an essay and truly formulating the thought. Amanda, does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the essay style, as you described it, that's what I love about blogging. I love to write and it helps me to work through my thoughts. So I've really enjoyed that type of blog post, but I'll just say where I've gone wrong in retrospect is that I'll do a post or two like that about a topic and there'll be interest. I'll start getting emails from people and social media, you know, all these comments and stuff. And then I'll say, oh, there's interest on that. And then I'll just start cranking out like a whole, I'll just start writing a whole bunch of stuff on that topic, like how to posts and explanation. I'll just start writing about it. And then it turns into like, well, then I should look up the SEO keywords. Well, then maybe I should like think about making a product about, I mean, it just, I end up going down this rabbit hole of like trying to turn a topic into a business. And I've done that a few different times and you very well could turn a topic like that into a business. But for me, I found that sometimes it's just something I'm interested in and I want to write about. I don't want to make money from it. As you were saying that, I love those type of posts, but I think you got to be careful not to just find something that resonated and then try to spin it off into a whole other thing on its own, unless it needs to be, it could be a business, but. You know, when we get to our mistakes, we'll talk about it, but like a good essay has a kind of a genuine searching quality to it. You know, like a lot of my essays, they didn't start until I was 1700 words in. And I realized that those first 1700 words didn't add up that I couldn't possibly think such a thing. And that's part of the beauty of that kind of genuine search for a kind of a knowledge, you know? And that's a hard thing to do because there's a little bit of soul in the game there. I guess going back to your the types of blog posts, like there's at least two kinds of personal blogs. There's one that I think of as like almost like the portfolio, like LinkedIn kind of stinks, almost like a better version of LinkedIn. Like, oh, I'm thinking about working with Amanda in some capacity and I'm going to go Google her and like read two or three blog posts. Like I kind of like started that way. And then there's like the blogging is a business thing, which like I got to post every week because this is like generating leads for other product or services I have. 
I think I might get, you know, just as much, or there might be just as much or more I enter just the the portfolio site. Like I'm gonna publish two or three things a year even. And, you know, you have like a just a basic, decent looking WordPress thing with your about page. The ROI on that relative to the effort that goes into it is like fairly high. And it's not a ton of upkeep costs. It's not an accurate. So I don't know, I'm curious, Amanda, I don't know if you feel that way about like your side or how you've approached it. Well, I think, I mean, I think what you're indicating there is like the important thing is setting your expectations up front. What do you want from this site? And so I think you're right that you could just have the about page and, and publish a couple really, like really well done articles a year. And it serves the purpose of giving you opportunities and being that calling card in your home on the web. I think it's easy to get distracted too when you, at least for me and for other people that I know, when you start getting good feedback from people, it can be like, oh, people want more of that. And then it's just so easy to snap into like my marketing mind and be like, well, let me create an email opt-in. Let me build a list. Let me like look for, and I just start, you know, I kind of get away from myself. And then I realize, wait, that's not the point. That's not what we're doing here. And so I think, yeah, for people thinking of starting one, it's just get clear on what do you want from it? Do you want it to generate revenue? Like what we're talking about is not a revenue generating site, right? We're talking about a personal brand and a personal platform. So if that's what you want, you can take the pressure off, I think. You don't have to do the publishing schedule. I still would build an email list. I think that's still really valuable, but I think you could take the pressure off about SEO and sharing every single thing you did and yeah. You can start as one and move to the other and like move back. I think the portfolio site is usually when people ask me, I'm like, you should like probably do that because it's not going to take that much time and you'll have something out there and you can point people to it and put it in your email signature or whatever. And then if you like really love it and life circumstances are allow such that you can spend a bunch of time on it and that's what you want to do, then like, you know, you can always choose to do that at some point in the future. Well, when I started my first blog, I had a corporate job. And so people listening will probably be in that situation. A lot of people might, you know, they'd still have a day job. And I think what I found was it felt like such freedom to have a space that was mine, that I could talk about whatever I wanted. And it's like a way to really test out you as a person, not as you as the employee. Who are you? What do you stand for? What are the topics that you talk about? And I think that has huge value from a self-confidence perspective and just starting to see yourself as somebody that's like separate from your job or what you do. I guess even for an entrepreneur, if you're really tied up in your identity as the business owner, to step out of that and say, well, who am I? I think there's a lot of power in that. I didn't even think of that. I even changed my name in order to step into a, a new personality because I didn't want to be the person I was at work. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, something different. There's a couple of bloggers I follow now that same situation. It's like they have a full-time job and usually what happens now is like some, I'll like be taught, you know, someone will reply to something on Twitter and I'll get in a conversation with them. And then eventually I'll click through and start reading their blog. And there's like, there's a number of people I've met in the last year. So I think in that same situation, it's like, they're just, you know, they have a, another full-time job or whatever, but they're like doing this thing on the side. They're flushing it out and people are getting traction and, and it's interesting to watch. Something that was just brought up, I, I wanted to mention, and is y'all were talking about not having expectations or rigidity around it. That this is a searching, it's an experiment, it's tinkering. And I think the biggest mistake I actually see with blogging is when people take it the opposite. They kind of set a hardcore grind schedule in terms of publishing. They have sort of mediocre to high expectations about what it might mean for their lives, and then they 
they go through the motions, in other words, of what being a successful blogger ought to be about. And I think this can be a big trap. And I, I always harp on it, but I see it a lot in the travel blogging space where travel blogging is often presented as an opportunity to change your life, to make money online. And people just go on this kind of multi-year journey of grinding out the next where can I grab spaghetti in Italy post. One of the things you can really do with blogging is like start with a good conception. And if that is simply I want to have a portfolio of, for my thinking and for my career, that's like a high upside, low downside proposition. But I'm going to go travel around the world and eat spaghetti in every city and spend a bunch of money on it and try to convince other people to eat spaghetti and hopefully get advertisers someday. This is where that conception, the conception under which you're spending so much time can be flawed and is a trap that many people fall into. As you were saying that, it just made me think a lot of the clients that I work with are just just starting their businesses. So they'd just be publishing their first website, their first blog post, right? And the amount of stress that goes into that first blog post, they have these expectations for themselves that their first blog post needs to be amazing, like written so well, beautiful imagery, like just so perfect. And they've set a super high bar. And the reality is, so they're terrified of publishing it. It feels super scary. But the reality is nobody's reading your first blog post, Yeah, right? Nobody's reading. Even your first 10, probably nobody's reading. And so I think that mistake that you're talking about for me is putting way too much pressure on yourself and not letting yourself be a beginner. Like if you've never blogged before, you're probably not going to be great at it the first blog post you publish. But the only way to get better at it is to do it and publish and publish and publish and publish. And after a while, you'll start to be great at it, hopefully. Or you'll decide it's not for you and you'll switch. But I think, yeah, when people, you know, they'll see a big, a popular website and be like, well, they publish four times a week and they write on all these things. So I should do that. You just nailed it, Amanda. That's the going through the motions I was talking about. Whereas like, I think for a new blogger, it might make sense to say travel blogging isn't the only space. There's lots of spaces like this. Like personal development is another good example where bloggers will write blogs that like, for their vision to be achieved, it would depend on a lot of people reading it. You know, if you're going to write about like how to have a positive attitude at work or whatever, like, man, I can't make real difference in my life or anybody else's lives unless thousands of people read this site. And so I got to model what big publishers are doing. And I think a decent way to approach it might be like, what if only just one or two people were to read your blog post? And what if they were the right people? How would that change your approach to writing? And I think that you're going to get a lot better results. You know, you can change your entire career with one blog post and one person reading it. Whereas I think a lot of people in the travel blogging niche is a good example to visualize this is like, well, I'm going to write this post about my trip to Italy. And if only two people read it, it would be an utter disaster because I can't sell ads against that. I can't get affiliate clicks against that. I really need this to rank number one for traveling to Italy. I need 2,500 people to read it a day. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. I feel like that's a formula for disaster unless you're pretty experienced and have a strong sense for how publishing works. But also, I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier about expectations. So, what you're describing with a travel blog like that—that's supposed to be a business. Like they're starting that with the expectation that I'm going to get comped all this great spaghetti in Italy, and it's going to, you know. I let me quit my job. Whereas the other type of blog we're talking about is much more a personal blog where you're creating a personal platform and it's not necessarily, it will generate, I mean, I believe it'll generate revenue. 
opportunities in the future, but you're not putting that pressure on it to start. It's a really different approach. You're describing this idea that I wrote down here with like, don't get stuck in the middle. And I love that. Yeah. If, if you're going to start a travel blog as a business, then go get it as a business and know how your unique personality and take is going to contribute to the bottom line. Whereas I see a lot of people, they, they want to have the expressive quality of the blog, the freedom quality of the blog, yet they're stuck in the middle somewhere. They're not quite thinking of it as a business. They don't want to hold themselves to that standard. And then on the other hand, they're spending a crap ton of time on it because it does need some kind of critical mass. And so it's the middle, like a lot of things in life, that is the problem, I think, with blogging. I think there is a transition there. Like, I think you can start at one of those ends and go to the other and go back and forth. Again, I think of people that like start as one and transition to the other and those kind of things. But I think, yeah, that's right. At any point in time, you need to pick one of them. You know, the other thing I was thinking as y'all were talking, Mark Manson had a great reply to a Quora post, I don't know, five or six years ago or something. It was like, how do I become a great blogger? And his answer was like, publish a million words on the internet and call me back. <laughs> By the time you get to a million words on the internet, you'll be good. There's a lot of truth in that. Like there's a, a quantity has a quality all of its own kind of thing. Like just get the first half a million words published and like all these questions will answer themselves over that time period kind of thing. So I think that for me was always kind of like a big thing. It's just like kind of got to stay on the train and keep going. And I, I think again, like for me, at least I, I enjoyed the process. The year's question was the same. It was like, if only like 50 people that I like, like and respect kind of thing, read this blog, like that's cool. Like that's like a perfectly successful outcome for me. Yeah. The million words thing is, is interesting because like, it's sort of the answer to everything in life. There is a kind of a caveat in there, which is like, you know, having a blog that does get traction and does make a big impact in your life and can become a business and all these things, it's not out there for everybody. It's not just a matter of doing it. Like you have to have a sense of why what you're doing is unique and or better it makes me think about songwriting a little bit. Like it's very possible just to pump out mediocre songs that no one but your roped in friends that you forced to come to your show want to listen to. At a certain point, you have to have an eye towards a kind of an excellence. And I think that's what Mark's achieved. And that's why people do read his writing. And so there is a risk there with blogging that you spend a great deal of time on it and you don't get past that envelope of quality where people actually do care about what you're saying. It's interesting how that part of the blogging world's really changed, I think, in the past 10 years or so. As it used to be when there was so much less competition, you could just put up a blog on anything and you'd find readers as long as you were publishing regularly. I remember, oh man, when I had like my first, <laughs> my second blog, which is kind of about making natural beauty products and like lots of food recipes. I remember people used to write in and say I was such a great photographer which is hilarious if you look at my photos because they're absolutely horrible. But back then, the bar was really low. There wasn't that much competition. There wasn't Instagram. So now, if you're starting from scratch, so you have no audience, you're starting your first blog, just because you put your posts up, nobody's going to read them. So you do have to get good quality. But the catch-22 is the only way to do that is to publish a lot so that you find your voice and find your perspective and become a good writer. And so I think you really have to enjoy the process, because you've got to go through those 10,000 hours or whatever of writing so that you can even get good enough that then you could start to get an audience. 
You just have to have your expectations straight and do it for the enjoyment and the journey and the benefit of having that personal platform rather than expecting it to deliver results right away, especially if you're starting like from scratch. So then let's talk about the downsides of personal blogging because we just made a strong argument. Obviously, we're passionate about this. I'm going to ask you to sit on the other side of the aisle and argue against this. And I'll start us off because something you just said, Amanda, sparked a thought in me, which is the first downside I thought of is like, time. Depending on where you're at in your career, like when I was starting, there was a lot of like, follow me on my entrepreneurial journey blogs. And I would think like, yeah, like your time would be better spent on the journey rather than the follow me on the journey part. And then like maybe write about that later. But the other thing that jumped into my head is sometimes like doing things in public, you can get attention for the wrong reasons. For example, like writing a certain kind of blog post that you know will get more shared on Twitter or more readers won't necessarily be like the most useful blog to write given your desired outcomes. And so sometimes doing things in public, you have to be careful like why people are commenting, why they're watching. Maybe an extreme example would be schadenfreude. Like sometimes people want to watch train wrecks. It doesn't mean that it's going to like be meaningful interaction for you. I've seen it happen over the years where people, they don't have that kind of attention elsewhere in their lives. And so it motivates them. And then they start spending a bunch of time going after this attention. Maybe I'm getting a little bit too esoteric here, but I do feel like getting attention for the wrong reasons, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you're tasked with being effective and driving outcomes. I've seen it go wrong for people. There's been a lot of like Instagram articles lately that are like, you know, I posted myself in doing all this stuff and like a lot of people followed me and then I tried to monetize it like two years later and like I didn't get any money. And it's really easy to see on Instagram, but that happens in the blogosphere too. I think and what Amanda said is right. It's like, what are your expectations, right? It's like, if you want to start a Instagram about like great mac and cheese and like you don't ever want to make any money off it. You just like love going out to eat mac and cheese and like it's cool to come people comment about your mac and cheese recipes. Like, cool. I got hobbies too. If you think your mac and cheese thing is going to be the next media empire, like it's probably not going to happen. And like same with with the blog. As founders of remote companies, we all face hiring challenges, like hiring today instead of next week or next quarter, scaling our teams quickly, and even just defining what we want in a candidate, where to find them, how much to pay them, and how to recruit them. There's a lot of questions. Hiring's complicated, but it doesn't need to be with RemoteFirstRecruiting.com. It's a service from our team where we help founders like you solve these hiring hangups. Even if you're not hiring today, you got to take advantage of our 15-minute free strategy call. It's with our senior recruiter, Greg Valentine. He's not a sales guy. He's a senior recruiter, industry expert, and he's helped place hundreds of remote candidates and companies just like yours. He can discuss with you the patterns we're seeing in the marketplace, share with you case studies, and talk about how you can build a rock-solid hiring strategy. Hiring doesn't need to be hard. Let our team do the heavy lifting. TMBA listeners, take advantage of this strategy call. It's a simple way to grow a better business. So head on over to our site, remotefirstrecruiting.com, where we believe hiring the right talent is the best way to grow a great remote business. Schedule a call with our team today at remotefirstrecruiting.com. Remote First Recruiting.
Amanda, we're talking about the downsides. And some of the ones that were brought up in the forum is that you could expose yourself to abuse or not only abuse, but maybe there could be like downsides for your business if you say things that are like unprofessional or unbecoming of your business. I mean, that's really valid that you need to think about the fact that you're putting something out there publicly. And yes, you can delete it, but there could still be copies floating around. There's a way back machine. Like once you publish something, you kind of lose control over that thing and where it goes. It could be a personal blog on your personal platform, but that doesn't mean that you need to share, you know, you don't need to share what you ate for breakfast, although some people like to do that, but you don't need to share like where you live or about intimate details about your family or I read this somewhere, but somebody was saying, you know, if you have all this personal turmoil, say you want to write about a really difficult situation that that you've been through, you don't write about it when you're in the middle of the mess. You wait till you're through the mess, you have some perspective on it, and then you write something thoughtful reflecting back on it. There's always that line, like this is your personal brand in a way that you're putting out there. I think it depends on what your personal brand is. I tend to be much more reserved, so I don't write about super personal stuff. But some people do that and it works for them. So I think it it depends on your personal comfort level too. It seems like that mainly kicks in at high levels, right? Like I think blogging, Instagram is probably more because it's like more visual, right? Like you see the person kind of thing. But even like I think you know you think about like very successful bloggers, like would you recognize them if you like sat next to them in a coffee shop? Like probably not. I've been recognized. Have you not? I've never been recognized. Oh my gosh, tell us the story. <laughs> it was years ago now. We were out at a, a bar in the evening, my husband and I, and this waitress came over and she goes, are you Amanda Cook? Like of the blah, blah, blah blog that I was, you know, whatever I was writing <laughs> at the time. And I was like, yeah. And my husband was just like, what is happening? Because <laughs> he was kind of like, oh, Amanda has a blog, whatever. But that when that happened, it was like, oh, people read. And even I was like, oh, you know, because sometimes you feel with blogging or podcasting, you're a bit removed because you're just in your office. I'm in my room alone, you know, writing or podcasting. And then suddenly you realize there's these real people out there and they've seen my photo and they know all my stories and they, they recognize me. It can happen. That's amazing. I've never had that happen to me. That actually reminds me of something like relative to this attention thing, which is I've had the unique experience as a blogger of meeting thousands of my readers. And that's been interesting because I realized that like the indications I get from speaking with them about their interactions with the blog versus what I would know if I hadn't met them. And I'm always shocked and try to communicate to bloggers like, you really have no idea who your audience is from your blog comments, from your Twitter mentions, from the shares. That is such a small portion of the readership. It might depend on your space. Like one of the things like I've noticed just as an example, a niche of like high net wealth individuals, they don't like to leave traces on the web. They don't like to comment. They don't like to tweet. They don't like to let people know what they're reading. And that doesn't mean they're not reading your shit. So I always try to encourage bloggers to remember, and it's tough, but like the vast, vast majority of people who are affected by your ideas, if you're a blogger, you're not going to quite know about it in a clear one-to-one way. And so what is the implication of, of the concept that I'm laying out here that you don't really know who your audience is? What is the implication of that? I'm going to get to that, a strategy for that in just a bit. 
But first, I just want to talk about blog alternatives. There is this moment in time that I remember so much, like the blog comments, the Technorati rankings, the if you didn't blog it, it didn't happen kind of moment on the internet where it was like, I sort of felt like I was going around the world trying to find things to blog. Like I wanted to share my experience. And it's obvious that that fundamental motivation has been replaced resoundingly by services like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I think that there's a part of me that comes from that old school that thinks that that's a little bit of a shame because I think the value of long form on the web in terms of how it can change your career remains the same, but people aren't drawn to it as the primary way to express themselves anymore given the new services. What's your take on how things have changed, Amanda? Yeah. When I think back to that time, I remember I had like a feed reader. I forget what it was, like Feedly or something. And every day I had all these blogs I followed and I was in there all the time, like keeping up with bloggers, commenting. Like that was my Instagram feed, basically, is I'd go through my RSS feed and comment on stuff and engage. And I feel like they probably exist, but I feel like that whole culture has really moved. I mean, for my, the people that I'm hanging out with, it's all on Instagram now. That's how people interact. And I think that is a shame because on Instagram, First of all, I think people, you're just scrolling through. It's not as much time as you'd spend on somebody's blog. And also, you don't own it, right? It's that situation of Instagram, Facebook owns it. Whereas with your own website, with your own blog, it's your place. It's your space. It's never going to go away and you can curate it the way that you want. I think that's really powerful. And I do think it's a bit of a shame that it's moved to Instagram, but it's so much easier, right? Like any, the barrier to entry on Instagram is like just, so easy. Whereas the blogs, I still think if you've never had one, I think it can feel a little bit intimidating. For sure. Trying to figure out how it would work. Taylor, I want to ask you specifically, a lot of your creative energy has gone to Twitter recently. Why did you make that decision? It's obviously like a big move that the more heady bloggers are heading off to Twitter to put long form content on Twitter instead of their blogs. Why are they doing that? A big function of it is just like it's where the readers are for the most part, right? Like I think we've gone from like the mid 2000s of like blogging, getting started. It was like, the main way you found blogs was like people had blog roles, right? Or they like links to other blogs. Like that was like the discovery mechanism, right? You'd be like reading someone and you'd like it. And you'd be like, oh, I'm going to check out the blog role and like see, you know, who else they're reading. And like, it was like their crew. Like if you read the tropical MBA, you better go read Taylor Pearson and Amanda Cook kind of thing. This is my crew. <laughs> right. I don't know when the last, I haven't seen a blog roll in like, you know, eight years or something. It's been a long time. So I think a lot of it, like just the evolution of the internet is, you know, it's moved on to these platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. And I think it's also gotten, you know, I think just as a function of like bandwidth has gotten better, it's gotten more visual, right? Like blogging was a big thing in the early 2000s because like, it was like, you couldn't like stream video very well in 2004, right? Like it's like most people didn't have fast enough internet connection. Like it wasn't really a working thing. So I think part of it's just like, I think that, you know, I can't remember the status off the top of my head, but like most content consumption is TV, kind of video at the top, followed by audio, followed by text, right? Like newspapers are only, you know, five or 10% or something. It's mostly TV and radio. So I think like that, we're just starting to see that assert itself on the internet, sort of my read on it, right? It's just like, as the bandwidth has gotten there and like, now you can like stream YouTube videos from your cellular 
Wi-Fi connection, like most people are going to watch YouTube videos. I think a lot of people are moving to those content formats because like that's where the growth is, right? Like that's where sort of the readership is growing. And then, yeah, I think you know, for me and Twitter, I don't like video content. You know, I just part of the way I consume, like I don't watch YouTube videos, maybe watch, you know, like an hour of YouTube a month or something. Like it's just not how I sort of like consume information and, and like written content is. So I think for written content, you know, as you said, like Twitter is kind of where all those, like a lot of, like I, for me, like blog comments are now basically Twitter, right? Like all the, the discussions that you have in blog comments now happen on Twitter, both like, yeah, to my readers or bloggers I'm following. A lot of people find me through Twitter now. Like that's probably the most common channel that people find my personal site. I think you bring up a really interesting point about the fact that, you know, TV and radio are kind of like the most popular things. And those are now trickling down onto the web where everyone wants to watch video or is starting to listen to more podcasts, which is great. That's been growing a lot over the past few years. That raises a really good point because you don't have to blog also. Like if somebody wants to have these benefits that we're talking about of having a personal platform online, I think you need to think of, okay, content creation's a marathon. What do I like to do best? Do I like to be on camera and do video? Do I like to talk and do audio or am I a writer? And you can just pick one. You don't need to do them all. And so if you're not a writer, but you love to be on video, you love to do public speaking, just start a YouTube channel. I would still create a website and an email list and embed the, you know, try to create your platform on the web. Same with a podcast. You know, you start your podcast and then you still have your website with your show notes. So you've got like a home, but you don't have to blog. It seems like Google now is also starting to transcribe and index and search audio. And I'd imagine that's only going to get better. For those of us that like to write, it's awesome having a blog. And it's it's personally beneficial as well because it helps you work through issues. But if writing feels hard, there's other ways to get a similar benefit, I think. 100%. And maybe the 80-20 of this, the strategy, and I want to get to strategies, guys, like your number one strategies. It sounds like something we've all advocated for. As someone who, you know, right now I have a company that helps people like express their career online through Dynamite Jobs. It's like a LinkedIn profile. And part of the reason we need to do that is because people aren't taking the time to create their own personal portfolio on the web. It sounds like we would all agree that if it's taking you a week to put up a clean WordPress install with a clear value proposition to get on your mailing list and with one or two good pieces and a biography, that that is going to go to work for you over the years in a very, very big way. And that's basically my thesis at Dynamite Jobs, which is like, you should go do this. You should go get amandacook.me and like create something that if I have a spark of interest in what you do, that I can go sit with you for 15 minutes and get to understand your perspective, who you are, and find ways that I might be able to connect with you that would be mutually valuable. Even if what you want to do is create tweets as your primary creative outlet. I feel like a broken record, but I feel like there's still so much value in having your own site. So I don't think I would make Twitter my main content outlet. I don't know. It just feels like even if you want to do Instagram and Twitter, you still need to have that home. Email runs on an open protocol of SMTP that the SMTP people are never going to like ban your email account, right? Like that's the major difference between email and all these other platforms. So I think I agree that I think having an email list with some sort of value proposition, which could be, you know, once a month, I'll send you three articles that I read, you know, whatever it is, something like super simple that's 
low friction makes sense. But then yeah, a lot of the discovery does seem to happen. Maybe some people like will Google your name, right? If they're like going to work with you or they hear about you somewhere else or whatever, but there's not like a lot of sort of discovery there. And I think I agree with, with what you said, Dan, right? Like it's just two blog posts and an email opt-in that goes to a free MailChimp account with an about page. Like you could get up in 20 hours or something is like really valuable on a one, two, three year, certainly like five, 10 year time frame. You don't really need to do much more than that. Like, you know, if you put up a case study once a year of like the project you were proudest of that went the best and, yep. you know, what you learned kind of thing. It's almost inconceivable why you wouldn't do that, right? Like, I think committing to it and like making it a permanent thing, like now there's like a big opportunity cost. It's like you could be spending a bunch of that time somewhere else, but like that amount of effort is like very low effort, I think potentially. Not doing that is like having a leaky bucket. If what you're going to do is like create Instagram content, YouTube, or Twitter, like collect the water at the bottom of the well. And one of the things, I'm a little bit of a blog elitist. I'm just going to say it. I think really smart people like to read blogs. You guys both mentioned that you click around, you read the blogs. Taylor, you said how many people you met in the past year. Smart people do this. I click around, I read what everybody's writing. I take note. I remember deeply in a way that I don't remember Instagram and Twitter. I remember what people write and I remember who they are and I, I file that one away And you know how many times I've read people's pieces and then like written them an email right away or or commented a lot, but it's only like 2% of the time. So now back to this point of like, what is the implication that like 98 times out of a hundred, when I am impacted by someone's writing, I don't tell them about it right away. It changes my life. I remember them. I think of them in a different esteem. I integrate their thoughts with mine, but I'm not giving them that indication. I'm not giving them that attention, that like. And that's a different kind of value. And this brings me back to a strategy I'd like people to consider if they're going to do this. I've called it the chops index in the past. And it's this idea that like your credibility as a content creator really, really matters. It really matters like what you've done, where you're coming from, how it affects people. And I always challenge people when they're going to create a blog. It's like, who are you writing for? How will it affect their lives? What sort of decisions will they make differently if they read what you're writing? And really good people, they care about where your ideas came from and how much credibility you have. And even if you're just getting started out, like presenting a case study about how your SEO strategy made a few extra thousand or a hundred dollars for a company, that could be enormously valuable to someone who's been running a big company for a long time and they're looking for the new hottest strategy and someone who's proven themselves as an implementer of that strategy. Whereas like, think about that same person reading a piece. It's like more general strategies from someone who peddles ideas about SEO and stuff. It's like, yeah, really good people are just going to be like, that's bullshit. But if you read the blogosphere, you see these kinds of popular posts, you might think that that's the way to go about doing things. And so my encouragement to the listenership today is just to consider this thing I'd like to call the chops index, which is like with my team, I call it the coffee table test, which is like, Forget about the abstraction of reality. Like, Imagine yourself actually sitting across the table from the reader. If they ask you a tough question, are you going to be able to answer it? Are you bullshitting right now? Like, Good people know. Good people can figure out what's going on. And if you write with that in mind, that real sense of like, don't bullshit people. Like, The best people don't want to be bullshitted. They want to understand exactly where you're at. That's the beauty of long form is that smart people with power and resources can understand exactly where you're at. If you give them that opportunity, maybe they can figure out a way to interact with you. 
you'll be surprised. You put up a post about financial stuff, SEO stuff. There could be people that run powerful companies that are taking a look at what you're reading, whereas they might not do it if it's more of a puffy piece or that's a long way of saying, I can't say it short, you know, (laughs) or else I'd be on Twitter. (laughs) The idea maze is like the way I always think about it. It's like, if you like really understand something, right, it's like you can almost like guide something through the maze. It's like, well, if you take a left here, it looks like it goes out. But like what you don't see is like there's this right hook and it ends in a dead end and there's a, you know, octopus monster at the end or, you know, whatever the, the haunted maze <laughs> kind of thing is, right? Like you, there's these very specifics. The phrase I like is like reality has a surprising amount of detail, right? It's like all these things look real. It's like, oh, SEO, you like update your title tags and da da da. But you know, you talk to someone that's like really good at SEO, right? And they're going to tell you about like, the internal linking structure of the site, your ratio of internal to external links is, you know, 4% suboptimal. But right, it's like they, they just know, they can tell, like, you, you change this one thing and it's going to affect all these other things, right? Because they sort of walked through that. You can display that really well through blogging or content other things, right? Like that, the really detailed case study where it's like not just general sort of platitudes, but like that super specific stuff. That's been some of the highest value stuff for me, for sure. But that's like using your blog and your platform to establish yourself as an expert or a thought leader, like you're sharing your expertise versus the approach of, well, let me Google and see what keywords there are. And let me do a little SEO research and write a keyword rich post about this topic. They're both writing, but they're on such opposite ends of the spectrum. And so I think, you know, again, expectations, but if you really want it to build your own authority, then those type of posts where you're really yeah, starting to establish yourself as a thought leader. That's the stuff. And people, you're right, people recognize that. It's so different from a like, you know? like So different. <laughs> totally. Dan, as you were talking about that, I just thought, you know, all of us, the next time you read something that touches you or that you're like, wow, that person really knows their stuff, we should tell them. Because like you said, you know, you might be touching tons of people and we hear from so few of our readers. And it's really it's really meaningful when you hear from people and you get these really nice emails sometimes about how it really touched them or, you know, it really helped them through a difficult moment or even just saying how, wow, you explained that so well. Thank you for sharing that. I rarely reach out to people like that, but I love it when it happens to me. So I think there's a little homework for all of us is to like reach out to somebody that wrote something awesome and tell them. So they keep going. 100%. It just makes me think of like how important it is to, to go to the mat on behalf of your readers. And that's a way you can really gain influence in the world. So Taylor, you did that on behalf of fans of Anti-Fragile. Oh my gosh, I read this book. It blew my mind. Like, I need to like kind of wrap my head around a little bit more. And you did that. Now you can do that with anything. I've heard case studies and seen case studies that happened recently where a blogger went to the mat on behalf of a user community of a piece of software. Now, I know you're interested in this new software that came out. Like It's got all kinds of implications and potential for us. I went to the mat. I worked in the software for a month. I became a total nerd. And here's how you can like follow along with that. And boom, you know who reached out to that person? The software company, right? Like These sorts of things, they're hard to do, but they're not that hard to do. And I think that's really the opportunity why we're all here. Like We've all changed our careers by doing stuff like that on our blogs. And I think that that's why we want to have this, why I want to have this conversation is like, yeah, like you can change your life with a blog. You really can, but you got to keep it real. 
I mean, I would avoid falling into the, here's the top five ways to, you know, be a better blogger sort of stuff. But that's also exactly the reason I think your blog and your, especially if it's a personal brand has to be really aligned with you. Because if you're talking about that, those level of posts and, you know, writing the tent, the million words and like, you know, it's a marathon, it can't be something that you're just marginally interested in. You have to be writing about those topics that at your core is stuff that you as a person are interested in because it's you as your professional brand. All right, guys, quick fire round. I've taken a ton of your time. I just absolutely love this. I didn't even get to all of the uh, philosophical ideas I wanted to lay out on the table. People are probably thinking about firing up Feedly, Amanda, or dusting off Google Reader or whatever people are using. What blogs have really inspired you or that are worth a, a deep dive? Have you all ever just gotten a cup of coffee and like done an archive, a deep dive of, of some wonderful personal journey? Could you make some recommendations or let us know what you like to read, Amanda? Yeah, mine. Oh, man. Well, I was going to recommend two that were just really life-changing for me, but I, I, to be honest, I don't read them anymore. But at the time in my life, they were just hugely... I think the value was they helped me understand a different way of thinking about living. So one of them was Escape from Cubicle Nation oh, yeah. by Pamela Slim in the mid, like, mid-2000s, because I... I had my job and this was escaping cubicle nation. And it kind of gave me hope that there was a way, a different way of living and working, you know? So that one, I, I think I devoured because I was so, it was so timely for me at the time. And the other one was actually these two blogs about Americans living in Paris or people living in Paris, because that was a big dream of mine too. So chocolate and zucchini and David Leibowitz, they're both like food blogs. And that was like back when food blogs were new, there was no Instagram. They shared these pictures of Paris and this food. And I just remember I could sit at my desk at lunchtime and look at those. And it was like, it was a way of like starting to see myself in a different kind of life. I have the same thing. Yeah. Like Mark Sisson, what was it? He had like a primal blueprint. I, yeah. I like read that. Yeah. And I lost, Mark's I, Daily Apple. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it was. That was like a transformative blog for me. I lost like 100 pounds. Ribbon Farm was another one that like I was a longtime reader and still read some. Marginal Revolution by Tyler Cowan is another one I've like been reading for a long time. And yeah, like totally, I can see the way those, and they, like I said, they saved my writing too, right? It's like I kind of, you know, you sort of imitate people you're writing and sort of blend the different things together. I choked on my coffee just imagining myself in your shoes, Amanda, that even today, like I'm trying to figure out what's happening with coronavirus and with politics and stuff. And you go to the news sites and, you know, it is what it is. And and then there was this alternative world coming about where there was one person sitting in Paris at a cafe, like telling you about it. And it, the way that that hit me changed my life time and time again. And I think I'll never really drop it that there was so many sort of little dispatches from tropical islands or from escapees of cubicle nation or from people who were just tinkering around with their lives, sort of earnestly sharing it for us so that we can be inspired and change our lives as well. And, and that's why, you know, the final question here is, should you start a personal blog? And my answer is, hell yeah, you should start a personal blog. And because it does have this sort of magic ability to connect ideas and places and people and uh, it's certainly had an enormous impact on my life. My one piece of advice, and I wish I could go back and give it to myself when I was starting, but is to give yourself permission to be a beginner. 
like many of us, I have really high expectations for myself. I'm kind of type A, a bit controlling, maybe a perfectionist, maybe. (laughs) And so if I could have gone back and just be like, hey, it's okay. You're a beginner. Like, just enjoy it. Just have fun with it. You know, find your voice. Like, just try it. Have it be an experiment. I think that's a big thing. Let yourself be a beginner. Have it be an experiment. Take the pressure off. You're going to be doing this for a long time. I wish somebody had said that to me because I felt all this pressure to like make everything great right away. It added a lot of stress and took a lot of the fun out of it in the beginning. I would echo that and echo the idea of just find something where you enjoy the process, right? Like something where you actually enjoy putting it together and not necessarily, you know, even if it's not some super mega successful thing. I think that that's true of starting a business too, right? Like how many times, you know, you sit down with the spreadsheet and you're like, oh, this is going to be a great business. And it turns out it's like three times as hard as you thought and not as profitable. And it, you didn't like it in the first place. And so you just quit, right? And it's like, you know, the best businesses, it's always like something you're super into and it always ends up being harder and taking longer and everything else, but you're okay with that. So I think same thing here. It's like the best blog posts are ends in and of themselves, not a means necessarily to get to something else. Thanks guys. We appreciate you weighing in on the conversation in the forum and then bringing it to the pod. It was a awesome pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Cool. Thanks guys. I could hardly hang up the phone on this one. I felt like we could have gone for another hour. Maybe we will in the future based on your thoughts, comments, suggestions, and voicemails. So many thanks again to Amanda Cook. She was wonderful to talk to. Check out her writing at amandacook.me. And of course, Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me and the Twittersphere at taylorpearson.me. If you're a blogger thinking about starting a blog or just an avid reader of them, of course, we would love to hear from you in the comments, which have changed over the years. Or ironically, drop us a voicemail over at our website. We'd love to hear directly from you. Of course, you can always reach me at dan at tropicalmba.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.